Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in chronological order. We are on the third to last episode of the Hidden Years content. And as much as I've enjoyed this ride, uh, as you've heard me say, I'm very ready to be done with this very complicated series with like 14 plot lines in every issue. Uh, I am so thrilled to welcome some new guests to the show today. And let me say thank you in advance to jumping into these particular issues, which have a lot of confusing continuity. So I appreciate these great acts of bravery. (laughs) Uh, Alicia Wilder is with me today, one of my most frequent co-hosts. I'm so happy to see her. I am thrilled to welcome two people that I'm meeting for the first time, but I am huge fans of both, uh, Dan Waters and Sarah Gailey. Let me have you each introduce yourselves. Let me know your name, your gender pronouns. Let our guests know where you we might know you from. And our intro question for today is, have you ever had anything thrown at you? Later in our review, you guys will see there's some X-Men ships where there's a, a Yeti in the mountains chucking rocks at them. That's where this question comes from. So we'll get there later. Uh, let's begin with Dan today. Hi, Dan. Hi. Uh, yeah, I'm Dan Waters. Uh, I am primarily a comic book writer. Uh, he, him pronouns. Um, you might know me from uh, I'm currently writing Loki uh, at Marvel uh, some assorted DC things Uh, I wrote Sword of Azrael uh, Arkham City uh, and books at Image like Homes Pilots and Coffin Bound Dan have you ever had anything thrown at you? You see you sent this question I was like I definitely have because I'm pretty irritating but um <laughs> the, th- the thing that the thing that springs to mind more in a very british way is i remember at school getting hit and i wish it had been thrown because i got hit with a cricket ball right where you wouldn't want to get hit with a cricket ball oh um like a like a funny video on the internet that. kind of thing yeah yeah and i'm just just in the school hallway like you know just you know you're walking along expecting no no incoming cricket balls and uh all of a sudden, you are uh, doubled over on the floor. Uh, I'm very sorry that happened to you, and I hope you've recovered. <laughs> I have had a number of British guests on recently, and I'm always fascinated. And of course, of, of course, because every American accent is different, but every British person I have on has a slightly different accent, and I love every one of them. <laughs> it's- and, we're, and we're all making them up. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to meet you, Dan. Thank you for coming on the show. Uh, let's go over to Sarah. Thanks Gaines. for having me. Hi, Sarah. Hi, I'm Sarah Gailey. My pronouns are they, them. Um, You might know me from such comic books as uh, Know Your Station, which uh, I wrote with my co-creator, Liana Kangas, who is in the next room for me right now, um, as we're here getting ready as we record for San Diego Comic-Con. You may also know my comic, Eat the Rich. I also write IP for Boom and Marvel, um, Buffy, Steven Universe, uh, and Black Cat, and now the recently announced White Widow. 
And um, I have, until today, I've never had a cricket ball thrown at me, although now I know it can happen at any time. <laughs> so I'll be on the lookout. Um, but I also have had a memorable school incident with uh, being the target of missiles. Um, the worst one was not at the hands of my peers, but at the hands of a middle school PE teacher who was trying to teach us how to play baseball. And um, this may shock you because most comic book people, I think, are notoriously athletic, but I am not uh, the king of hand-eye coordination. And it was my turn at the plate to bat. And I was I was not doing a good job. And the PE teacher had decided it was because I didn't want to. And so she said, no one goes to lunch until Sarah hits the ball. And all of my peers stood in a line and watched as for probably 20 minutes, I increasingly failed to hit this baseball. Um, and weirdly, I didn't end up going pro after that. I don't know what shook me and I really need to get back to it. So this whole comics thing will just be temporary until I figure that out. Uh, Sarah is... If it makes you feel any better, they didn't, they didn't ask me to go pro with the cricket either. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. What are we missing? <laughs> Uh, Sarah is known for both uh, nonfiction and fiction writing. You just heard a little bit of fiction writing today when they said most comic book people are notoriously athletic. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. <laughs> uh, it's so nice to meet you, Sarah. And let's go over to Alicia next. Hello, I'm Alicia. Uh, she, her pronouns. You will know me from all the glorious time I get to spend here on Gray Malkin Lane, but also uh, as co-host of the Ex-Wife podcast. And, um, oh man. So a time I had something thrown at me, I was working at a coffee shop and we had a customer who uh, grabbed her drink by the cover and the drink fell. And so I said, nope, no problem. Let me make you a new one. So I made her a new one, brought it over to her table and um, she did it again and it fell again. And I... The owner of this coffee shop didn't really like us to give things away for free. And I had already given her a second coffee. So I was a little afraid um, to make her another one. So I told her that that I was like, I, I don't think I can make you another one. And she was really upset about the cups and she threw her chair at me. Oh, God. <laughs> she threw she was like, because she almost spilled her coffee on her computer. And I was trying to help her clean it up as we were having this conversation. And she pulled out the chair and threw it at me. And I was like, oh, well, let me just make you another coffee and then run in the back and hide from you, please, forever. Uh, I have discovered doing this show, these really odd questions are a very weird form of icebreaker, but these are great ways to get to know each other. <laughs> uh, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I use he, him pronouns. You guys know me as the host of this show. I'm also a former Marvel Comics handbook writer, uh, uh, a memoirist, and a documentarian. I, uh, I'm going to tell a weird story. When I was 15, my mom wrote an entire religious musical that I was then in a starring role in at a community theater. And there was a part of the show and it's, it's hokey and I love my mom and she's a very talented writer. But this particular part of the show, I was a teenage boy falling in love with a girl and I had a love song that I had to sing. And the title of the love song was Hey, Mr. Squirrel. No joke. I'm singing to like a squirrel up in the tree about how I'm in love with this girl. And at the end of the song, they would, uh, someone off the off the side of the stage would chuck a pine cone and it would like hit me. And I'm like, oh, you squirrel, you hit me with a pine cone. It was this gag. Uh, and every night as they were getting ready to throw the pine cone, I'd be like, because I didn't know where it would hit me. 
And on the final night of the show, they threw like 20 pine cones out as a joke. It was like a, like an assault of thrown pine cones. That's my weird uh, throwing story. Yeah, uh, the longer I'm in the show, the more my listeners learn of my very weird life. So <laughs> enjoy, uh, enjoy the uh, squirrel love song story. Um, I always like to start out the show. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Alicia. I, I would love a video of that. Do you have like home video of that song? That I, I bet it exists somewhere. Watch. Oof. I I was like four. I was like fifteen and looked nine. It was not a good time in my life. <laughs> uh, I always like to start off the show by getting to know new guests. Sarah, if you'll begin for us, I'd love to hear a little bit of your origin story, uh, and then kind of how you worked into getting into the industry, writing comic books. Oh my gosh. Um, I mean, I have been I have been a writer throughout the duration of my career who will write whatever they let me. Um, anytime someone says, do you want to write this new style of thing or this new genre or in this new medium? I'm like, oh my God, you're going to let me do that? Yes, of course. I started working um, in short fiction, primarily science fiction and fantasy. I wrote a lot of short stories and I always said, I'll never write anything longer than a short story because it seems too hard. And everyone I know who writes novels seems miserable 100% of the time. So I'm, I'm never doing that. Um, and then through a series of incredible coincidences, I, my dream literary agent got in touch with me and said, would you be interested in working together? Um, I just would need you to write something longer than a short story because uh, agent literary agents um, in the U.S. work on commission, which means that they make money when you make money and short stories don't make any fucking money. So I said, I, if I have to write a novel, I can come up with an idea, but you know, everyone who I know who writes them seems miserable all the time. And my uh, now agent said, yeah, you'll be miserable all the time, but it, it'll be worth it and you'll love it. Um, and so I got into writing novels. Um, my first novella, which is like a short novel, came out. Um, and a, an editor who now no longer works in comics, but who at the time worked at Boom Studios, got in touch with me and said, do you have any interest in writing comics? And I said, I don't know how to write comics. I don't think I'd be good at it. And he said, I've read your novella. You can write comics. You will, you write already in the style um, that you need to write in for comics, which in hindsight may not have been a compliment to the novella. Um, if it was reading like a script, <laughs> but I, I got the opportunity uh, through this editor to learn how to write comics. Uh, he was an incredible mentor to me. Um, now he's working in film. I won't name him because I don't know if he wants those streams to cross, but I got the opportunity to write um, some comics IP, which was, Amazing, right? Working in IP is a great way to learn um, a lot about the industry because you have space to ask lots of questions without putting a lot of burden on people who are already uh, stretched to their maximum creative capacity. You get you get to say, can I nose in here and you tell me a little bit about how your work goes? Um, and from there, I developed uh, originals with Boom and everything has unfolded brilliantly. I've taken every opportunity in this industry as a chance to learn more about how comics work. Um, right now, I'm, I'm, I've just finished releasing Know Your Station with my co-creator, Liana Kangas, who also drew True Cult, and um, she said Destroy. Liana is a creative powerhouse and complete genius, and every time I talk to them, I get to learn more about just in-depth details of how things, how things work um, on the art side. I don't know. I every I'm sorry. Every question you ask me, I'm just going to derail into an opportunity to talk about how lucky I am to work in this industry. Um, I love but, that like optimism and enthusiasm in your voice. Like it's very infectious. 
I, I, every, every time I get to meet new people who do new creative things, I'm like, this is the best day of my life. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sarah, I adore your writing from a lot of different levels, but I love again, hearing that enthusiasm. Uh, A thing people don't often consider when we're talking about writing careers is who's your target audience? How many pages do you have? What format is it in an infinity comic versus a pride anthology versus a full issue or an annual and your story style has to change based on what you're doing. I want to come back to that in a moment, but Dan, I would love to uh, hear your origin story and how you got your beginnings in the industry as well. Um, generally through sort of a pig-headedness, um, I, uh, I sort of knew I wanted to do, or I got interested in doing comics uh, when I was at college. I originally thought I wanted to do film and then didn't have the patience. Um, uh, also sort of realized I was reading more comics and I was I was watching films so it, it seemed like a uh, an interesting space in which there was more untapped as well um so I started looking for any sort of crack I could I could worm my way into into the industry through um which led to me working uh interning at a at a very small like micro publisher but there I met um some some really incredible people um casper wingard uh first among them he's a, a incredible artist who i still work with at every opportunity my co-creator on uh homesick pilots and uh uh limbo which was uh my first book so while casper and i were still working at this uh micro publisher we pitched that to image and they picked it up and everything kind of went from there that led to getting asked to do uh, Lucifer um, for the Sandman universe when they were relaunching that. I'm not quite sure how I pulled that off, but, you know, I sort of went from from doing like this little indie book, which which no one saw, to, to flying to New Orleans to, to break story with Neil Gaiman. Um, and, and yeah, since then, I've just kind of, it's it's been one thing's led to the other. You are currently working uh, at Marvel, which is the work I'm most familiar with because I do all the Marvel stuff. But I have uh, I've read through your bio and looked through your uh, career. Uh, I just reread your first two issues of Loki last night in preparation. Uh, how do you approach a character with a, a, histori- a history and a mythology like Loki? Uh, you begin your book with, uh, if I'm saying it right, Nagelfar, the, the ship that's built from the dead. And there's an image of someone getting their fingernail sliced because this ship is being built out of fingernails. And then a full page of Loki, like taking handfuls of fingernails and like sorting through them. And I was like, it's so good. Uh, I would love to hear how you approach a series like this, Dan. Um, Just steal from the myths. Um, That's all, that's all real stuff from the, from the editors. Uh, And I love sort of finding ways to, to fit you know, I mean, you know, as I'm sure we'll get into when we talk about the these issues, like comic books are really weird and they really, the suspension of disbelief is so like high to begin with that to then sort of take the weirdest stuff from the myths and, and find the way that it fits in um, is always kind of a delight. But yeah, writing Loki is a, a pretty good preparation for that is to spend two years writing Lucifer, to be fair. Uh, how did you get this particular job? Um, Marvel just reached out. Uh, I've never worked for for Marvel before. I've done a few. Uh, I've done quite a bit at DC, um, but it was it was a very very nice thing for them to reach out with. 
um, particularly for for the kind of stuff I do. Did they offer you Loki, or was that your idea? Uh, no, they offered it. Um, they they just emailed and said we wanted a new Loki book. Um, do you want to write it? So it was as simple as that. It's really fun. Your use of narrative, the souls of the dead being the narrators in the book, is brilliant. I'm really excited to see where you go with this. Oh my goodness! Oh, thank you. The more Chad talks about this book, the more I'm ready to read it. Um, you love you some Loki, if I'm remembering. I love me some Loki. Um, so, as a cosplayer, I like really get connected to the characters that I choose to cosplay, and. I find things about them that I either know, like, oh, that is within myself and I love that, or that is something in this character that I wish was part of me, so I'm going to figure out a way to work that into my life. And so I'm wondering, with a character like Loki, are there parts of yourself that you see in him when you're writing him, or things that he has done in your stories that you want to take into your life? Um, Yeah, I think there's always a bit of a wish fulfillment to writing. particularly like a trickster kind of character, like one who gets away with stuff, uh, sort of just is this force of chaos. I mean, I don't know, maybe that's just me, but uh, someone who's just this force of chaos in the world and sort of gets away with it. And um, I mean, yeah, Loki goes a little bit further than I think uh, anyone ever should, but that's, <laughs> that's the fun of it. Really good writers, Dan, will t- uh, take continuity that is dense and weave it into the storyline in a way that seems seamless. Uh, you acknowledge Loki's history, his shifting. He's the god of this and then the god of that and now the god of stories. Uh, your o- your last page in the opening book as you introduce your approach for this character and how you wanted the story to happen around him, the chaos of what's going to happen to him. Uh, you you also have uh, Loki change from male to female between issues. Mm-hmm. I love the way you're working in this character's mythology, but making it feel very Asgardian. I don't know that that's a question so much as a statement. I'm just really impressed. Uh, do, you, do you have comments on that? Like the way you weave in the continuity of all this? Yeah, I mean, thank you. That's that's. I mean, that's it's very nice to hear because it is. Uh, it's something I feel. Um, I do feel quite strongly about, like especially especially is there's a difference between. Marvel and DC in terms of continuity, uh, where where there's a little bit more leeway with 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 DC because there's been reboots and there's been rebirth, which uh, which gives you a, a sort of narrative leeway in 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 a way which is quite nice in terms of you can uh, throw out the bathwater without the baby uh, and focus on the things that matter. But the, the you know the Marvel universe is so it's built of it's built of stone rather than than cardboard it's it's all it's all everything happened and everything uh continues to have happened um so there's a there's, there's a real you know it, it it's important to keep all that foundations underfoot but um i never wanted to feel like you need to have read uh this or that or the other in order to in order for the story that's in front of you to make sense or for a character showing up to feel significant it should never be that sort of thing of like and now it's this guy and if you've never read anything with this guy why would you care so um yeah so 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 always making sure it has weight within the story itself i think is 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 what you're getting at there Using my own words here, it sounds like at DC you can take the the puzzle pieces or the blocks and make a new structure out of them. Where Marvel, it's like you're adding a new story on top of the skyscraper. Like that's a very different type of of storytelling approach. Uh, 
Very impressive. Uh, Sarah, this is not a question about your professionalism for just a moment, but I just have to laugh so hard. Uh, you were telling us before about your adventure this morning and even logging in for the show. Uh, Sarah is in a Anchorman-themed room, sitting on the floor between a bed and a wall with a Dr. Pepper being kept, or Diet Coke being kept behind a curtain, because it's the only place to put it. <laughs> Do you want to talk about your morning adventures? <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, right now as we're recording, I'm in San Diego. Uh, San Diego Comic-Con is coming up this weekend, but I'm here a little early because I have the staggering honor of being the interlocutor for uh, Chuck Tingle's book launch tonight. Um, Chuck Amazing. Tingle's new horror novel, Camp Damascus, comes out this week. It's phenomenal. It, it is a horror novel about uh, conversion therapy camps. Oh, God. And it's beautiful and brilliantly written and, and marvelous. And um, Chuck asked me to be the interlocutor for the launch event tonight in San Diego. So the publisher uh, had me haul myself down here a few days early. Um, I got this Airbnb and the one that was available near the convention center is Anchorman themed. Um, the building is for was built in probably nineteen between nineteen fifteen and nineteen twenty five. So uh, the outlets are few, far between, and frighteningly placed. There are some that are uh, directly in the middle of the wall, um, and by middle I mean between floor and ceiling, not <laughs> not centered laterally. Um, and yeah, I'm hoping, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping I'm you get to wake up in the morning and like, you'll look up at the ceiling and Will Ferrell's face will be looking down at you. <laughs> I'm, I am looking at a bronze bust of Ron Burgundy across the room right now. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a strange and wonderful place I've entered. Um, and yeah, I'm sitting on the floor, uh, with my laptop on a upturned laundry basket. <laughs> Uh, now, Sarah, I'll be fully honest. Your name is a new one to me. I recently had the honor of reading the Marvel Pride anthology. And anytime I see new storytellers or professionals, I'll look them up. I quickly sent you an invitation to the show because I saw this long list. Alicia and I were just talking. Uh, when we looked up your name, there's like, oh, God, there's like these 12 things I want to read now. And like it goes to my giant stack of books that I'm very excited about. You wrote a story in the recent Pride anthology called Be, Gra Be Gay, Do Crimes, which is the best title for any book I've ever heard. Uh, and you gave us an X-Men story that Black Cat uh, sneaks in through the Thieves Guild, Thieves Guild, manipulating Gambit into showing him the gem of Kandra. Uh, she then breaks into the gem and Kendra's like, I am the god here. What do you want? And she's like, nothing. I just want to see you, sweetheart. Let's go on a date. And it's such a good story. I smiled all the way through. Uh, I know I just like gave everyone a spoiler for the, the, the Pride book, but I hope this gives them a reason to pick it up. Uh, tell us how you got this gig at Marvel and how you decided to tell this wonderful story. Oh, my goodness. Um, similar to Dan, Marvel reached out to me and said, would you be interested in writing a short story for a Pride anthology? And I had been writing, um, I, I had been writing with Boom for the entirety of my comic career at that point, and said, "Marvel is in my inbox." Oh my god! Um, I was very normal and calm about it, uh, but said, "Yeah, of course, I would love to do this." Um, they offered me kind of a, a menu of characters who were not already spoken for. Said, you know, these are the characters who are established as canonically queer, who no one is already writing a short story for. And Black Cat is, uh, I'm in love with her. She's she's perfect in every way. She's nice. she's a criminal who, um, she's a master thief because she loves crime. She commits crimes because she thinks 
Crime is one of the most fun and delightful things you can do. It is an exercise of skill that she enjoys very deeply, which is my favorite type of creativity. I love talking to and working with creatives who do what they do because they think it's fun as hell, even when it's miserable, even on the days when I'm like lying on the floor going, why do I do this to myself? Um, it's still the most fun that I can have. And then Felicia is also bisexual, profoundly and gleefully slutty, which I identify with on a spiritual level. Um, every time a hot person walks by, she is like, should I steal from them or should I try and go on a date with them? <laughs> and so bringing her to New Orleans Pride um, to try and hook up with Kendra just felt really natural. Um, I have always wanted to meet a gigantic god of uh, vice and theft and ask them on a date. Um, I just put my own kind of flirting style into Felicia's uh, world and said, how would this work? And it was a blast to write. It was so much fun. It's so good. Yeah, it was really a fun story. Um, so, okay. So we, we kind of got this like broad scope of the journey of your career and all the different type types of writing that you do. And I'm interested to know in writing on your own, like writing a novel or writing a short story and then getting to work with artists and write comics how do you change your tactics when you're working with an artist? And do you use the art to enhance your story in a different way than you would when you're writing without art? Absolutely. I change, I change everything for the artist. Um, this has been, this has been something that I've been learning and growing in um, as I write more comics. When I first started out, of course, you know, I was working mostly with my comics editor and saying, okay, what is it that you need me to do? How is writing comics different from writing prose? Learning about the form. Um, and so I started out in comics working pretty isolated, which is how IP kind of goes. Um, in IP, it's it's more difficult to connect with an artist because you're usually on a tighter timeline and you have like the sort of, okay, write the script and maybe then we'll find an artist. Maybe we don't have one yet. It's very different from the co-creation process. But as I've been writing more, I've been more proactive in as soon as I start out trying to get in touch with the artist and say, first, what script format makes your life easiest? Mm -hmm. This is a logistical concern more than a creative concern, but I think that logistics inform creativity in a huge way. And so I always ask my the artists who I'm working with, what do you do when you get a script to make it so that you can work with it? And then I try to do that in my drafting process. And it changes the story pace and changes the story beats in a way that lines my brain up with the artist's brain. So, for example, when I started working with Liana on Know Your Station, uh, Liana said, one of the most important things is I need space on each page because I sketch on the, I print out the pages, I sketch on them or I sketch on them on my tablet. Um, and so I started drafting page by page instead of doing a, a story that flows through with no breaks. Mm -hmm. And I started leaving space for sketching which made me start leaving more room in my panels for more artistic details because I was saying, let me try and leave more visual room uh, on the page as I'm writing text. And that means taking up less real estate with bubbles and with letters. Um, so that's the first thing I do. And then I always say, what do you love to draw and what do you hate to draw? Mm. Because like the last thing I wanna do is start working with an artist 
and be like, I wrote this story that's all about horses, trains, and close-ups of people's hands, and then <laughs> send them into a creative death spiral. Um, and finding out what my artists love to draw is so much fun, too, because I can direct less in the script for those pages. Um, I'm currently working with Alessandro Miracolo for White Widow, and Alessandro is delightful. He is such a a brilliant, like bright, shining, vibrant human being. And I said, what do you love to draw? And he said, everything. But I especially love to draw action scenes. So all the fight scenes that I'm writing, instead of going beat by beat and saying precise action, I'll say, this is the shape of the fight. You know, it's very violent and explosive. Or it's very close up. And here are the important things that need to happen. But this is your discretion, how you want this page to move. And I just got pencils in and they're like looking incredible. And he brings this dynamic energy to the fighting. You can see the love for it in what he's drawing. I'm going to start uh, doing something. Uh, uh, go, so please go ahead. I'm going to start doing something new because I don't, I think I'm allowed to say this. I don't think it's a spoiler. Um, uh, Yelena Belova, the white widow is getting a pet in the series. And I wrote the pet into the script. And Alessandro said, I have had that kind of pet. And so I'm I'm drawing it. And in his pencils, you can see the energy of someone who understands this kind of animal really well. So going forward, I'm going to start asking artists who I work with, like, what what's do you have pets? Do you have favorite drinks? Like, like yeah. give me the texture of your life because the artist's love and understanding comes through so well on the page. When I do comics, which is rarer than you guys, but I have lots of aspirations, I will literally do uh, like a full page. I'll draw the panels on the page and draw like stick figures in the order that I want them. And then communicating with the art artist is always a different thing. I have children, but outside of raising them and maybe producing this show sometimes, my greatest joy is seeing pencils come back. Like there's something mm -hmm. so magic about that. Uh, do you want to take that same question? never get so... Yeah, Dana, do you want to take that same question? Uh, how do you work with different artists? And I would love to hear a little bit about your work with German Peralta on Loki, who is just amazing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, Sarah covered it really well. I think it's, you know, the best thing to do is always to uh, try and um, have as much communication as you can um, to try and fit what you do to the to the artists you're working with. I think that's a big part of what the job is um, because I think you can very easily get wrapped up in just thinking your job is to put as many words on the page as possible to feel like you've earned your page rate. And that's just not, uh, not true. It's not actually fun to read. Um, so, so finding what an artist is good at and what they love to do, which tends to be the same thing, um, is, is always uh, one of the big things um in the beginning of, of of starting any book or any new project with a with a new creator uh working with german is is uh has been incredible though because we were just very very quickly in sync mm. um i didn't know who was writing loki when when i started scripting it but uh german got the first script and then emailed me and said like oh i love drawing um different kind of weapons and different sort of you know weird sort of weapons and i was like okay good because this book is about Loki tracking down three different uh, shards of a fingernail ship, which have turned themselves into different weapons. <laughs> um, so, so that worked out. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, sometimes uh, you have to sort of work out how to work together. It's, it's like any sort of working relationship. 
Um, but Loki has been utterly seamless. That it, it it went so well, um, so so quickly. Uh, Sarah, you got to work with Bailey Rosenlund as well, which is so exciting. How was that? Oh, it was amazing. Um, I mean, I completely agree. Getting back pencils is it. It's like magic. It's like it's like this thing that lived inside your brain all of a sudden is in front of you. And Bailey, it's like it's like a small orgasm every time. (laughs) (laughs) Bailey delivered so incredibly well. I mean, I'm writing this script that has tons of detail packed into it because it's you know for a short. For a short story in comics, you're fitting a whole story into like six script pages. Um, you know, maybe oh, I masked out the panels and it was like a minuscule number of panels. And I was like, how am I going to fit this whole story in here? And Bailey was like, no problem. I'll put all these little background details in here. We've got, you know, a little early action beat with Gambit throwing an exploding lollipop to disperse a crowd of turfs at a pride parade. Um, <laughs> Which, by the way, I was so, I was on such eggshells about. I wrote this into my script and I was tiptoeing around because I had worked with, um, on Buffy before, I, which is owned by Disney. And I was like, I don't know what the mouse is going to be cool with. And mm-hmm. my editor at Marvel was like, don't tiptoe on this. Get their asses. <laughs> I was like, great. Okay. Yes. Um, fuck terms. Like, yes, let's destroy them. But Bailey just, Delivered at Bailey was like, I know exactly how to how to do the visual storytelling to establish this group in our background and keep the focus on the conversation that's happening while also bringing this sense of like menace and unpleasantness in the background of the scene. And of course, the way that Bailey illustrated Kandra is like, this is a person who understands the appeal of a giant woman who doesn't care about you and wants to know why you're bothering her. <laughs> like, I, I, this is exactly what we need. Uh, switching gears briefly, what is the, your relationship with the X-Men uh, for, for both Sarah and Dan as a, as a fan, or do you have X-Men aspirations? Um, I can jump in first. I, my relationship with the X-Men is that I was at a, a formative homosexual age when the first movie came out. And I spent, I think, hours hypnotized by Mystique going, there is something in my brain that is connected to this woman. What is happening to me? Um, and since then, I've just had a very affectionate relationship with the X-Men. I'm not, uh, I'm not married to any of them. Um, but every time I see them, I go, oh my God, it's you. And I'm, I'm really thrilled. So the opportunity to dive in and do a lot of reading for this podcast was a real treat. I, uh, I am gay, but Rebecca Romaine as Mystique can get it for sure. Like (laughs) I just, she, she's a universal donor. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Dan, same question for you. Um, I guess the big thing for me is that, uh, I was handed, um, the Claremont uh, Miller Wolverine uh, when I was really young and I've probably read that comic three, four hundred times. Um, I was handed uh, Claremont Miller's Wolverine and the adaptation of Terry Pratchett's Mort on the same day and I think like both of those books are like my primary comics DNA. Like that's everything I write kind of has both of those things in it. 
It's uh, it's incredible. This franchise is something we celebrate here as uh, queer people and allies. Uh, there's it, this is such a fun time to be an X Men fan. Uh, we are recording this right before San Diego, so by the time this episode airs, uh, the Hellfire Gala will have happened, and things are vastly changing in the comics. <laughs> so there's going to be a lot of conversations. But we recorded this in mid July. Uh, okay, we're going to transition into the inter or into the issue review portion. Uh, Dan and Sarah, it's so fun getting to know you. Thank you both for uh, for being here. Uh, I want to ask you in a moment what it was like for you jumping into the mid middle of the Hidden Years. Uh, X Men: The Hidden Years, of course, is the John Byrne series from the early two thousands, which is set in the pre continuity in between the cancellation of the first volume of X Men and before their adventures prior to Giant Size Number One. So there's a lot of crazy stuff going on. John Byrne at this time was also writing a series card called Marvel The Lost Generation, which ran for 12 issues, and it was being produced concurrently with The Hidden Years, so John was very busy at this time. And what this book does is it tells you the story between uh, anything that happened with like the Marvel monster area in the 1950s and all the war comics, and it bridges the gap between that and Fantastic Four number one. Now, the series is problematic. I've talked to Tom Brevoort about it on the show a little bit before in that there's a sliding time scale. So a book that might have bridged 10 years now has to bridge 60 years because it's always just a widening gap. But we're going to see some of that content come up in our issue reviews today from the first line team in uh, Marvel The Lost Generation. Okay, so previously in The Hidden Years... Angel took Candy Southern, Cyclops, Iceman, Beast, and Marvel Girl to Warren's family home, where his mother, Catherine Worthington, who is a recent widow, is planning to marry Angel's evil uncle, Bertram Worthington, played by Paul Lind, the light-powered dazzler, the man who killed Angel's father, uh, who now knows Warren as a mutant, but Catherine doesn't know any of this. She's kind of sickly. Angel wants to tell his mom, and the doctor, the family doctor, Dr. Stewart, said, no, you can't do that. That might kill her. It's very 1940s soap opera, which we love. Uh, meanwhile, Havoc and Lorna Dane have been left behind at the X-Mansion, and Charles Xavier is hanging out with a single mom, Terry Martin, and he has just performed unauthorized psychic brain surgery on her 10-year-old daughter, severing her ability to access her mutant powers. And now he's staying in their house and kind of like telepathically bossing them around and maybe fucking Terry. It's very uncomfortable. This is the simplest intro I've had to give in all of the hidden years. You guys can tell why. <laughs> <laughs> just to move past this series, although I love it. It's a lot for this show. Uh, what was it like for you uh, to jump into this series? Uh, I'm assuming you were familiar with it before, but maybe haven't read it. Uh, Alicia, do you want to take that first? Uh, what are your thoughts? on? Yeah. The oh, okay. Well, first I was like excited that we weren't, I wasn't reading a sixties comic. Cause I was like, maybe I'll get away <laughs> from the, like the, 60s-ness of it all and then I was like really actually interested in the way that it was sort of infused with a more modern take um but I just love seeing the characters in their moments of like humanity and the ridiculousness of like well I'm bored so I'm just gonna go like Alex like I'm bored Lorna let's just go on this mission by ourselves and I don't feel like being you know I don't feel like telling my family how I really feel. So I'm going to sit here in the corner and plot evilly and just, I don't know, the ridiculousness of Cyclops hiding behind a couch as a way to like <laughs> save everyone in a fight. Like just these little moments just make me so happy. And 
but I did have a moment of like, okay, let me get to this part of the issue. The last part of the second issue, this is the part that I have to discuss. And let me look at how many stories are happening right here and how many of these characters I don't know at all. And I, you know, it's kind of like a point to what Dan was talking about earlier in that, like, in that moment, I a little bit felt like I should have read all of these other things to know what was happening here. And as a person who has just been coming into comics in the last like three years or so, it's really interesting to me and helpful to me when writers make it so that I don't have to know everything else in the Marvel universe to know what's happening there. So I did feel a little bit like I'd read the second half of that issue twice to say like, what? What's happening? Yeah, this this two issues we're going to review today use the phrase that only a week has passed in this entire series. The previous 14 issues, which have involved like plot lines that take six, seven, eight issues to resolve because the characters are in four or five places at once. In this issue, they're only in three places, and that's already a lot. Uh, but we're we're like the the issue we're about to review, number 13 to be, or excuse me, number 15 to begin, opens with a scene that takes place prior to the end of the last one. It's it's very weird pacing and storytelling. Uh Dan, what is uh what is your thoughts initially on the hidden years? Um, yeah, it's a lot. Um I do like the sort of telenovela uh of it all. Um <laughs> that feels intrinsically X-Men as well um and yeah particularly like uh, issue 15 felt quite comparatively quite uh contained in that it was it was dealing mainly with one thing and then issue 16 it was just it, it felt like all right well we're bored of that so let's just have everything happen <laughs> um but yeah i mean it's 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 peak comics uh and uh sarah Oh, I had a blast with this. Um, one of my favorite things in the world is drama that doesn't involve me. I <laughs> I, am, I live for mess as long as I'm not actually having to be involved in the mess. And this was so much mess. Um, I especially loved uh, the phrase, not quite meanwhile, that's used to place the issue 15 in time. It's like, you know, when you're telling an anecdote to a friend and you've both had like one and a half glasses of wine and you keep having to loop back and be like, oh, and I forgot to tell you, she hates him and he <laughs> dated her mother for a while. Um, I love that. I also really like my deep, dark secret is that I used to be in theater. And so I really loved the Hamlet of it all. And I kept on being like, oh, Claudius, he's here. Um, so I had I had a blast. I I managed to ride the wave of not knowing everybody and not knowing all the details of what was going on well enough. Um, Welcome to any X-Men comic ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's also just my life. I just, I just live my life going, I probably don't know what's going on and maybe that's fine. <laughs> Uh, a quick lightning question for all of you. Would you rather have lunch with Burt Worthington Dazzler or Alison Blair Dazzler? Alison Blair, 100%. <laughs> Well, I love this Burt Worthington, though. I mean, he's so campy. I just feel like if I got lunch with him, I could be like, who do you hate? And he would go off for 20 minutes and I could just enjoy myself. I, I said it quickly, but I described him as Burt Worthington as played by Paul Lind, which is the perfect fit for him for me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
mail checks, invoices, documents, and everything you need to keep your business running. Get rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS. And with the mobile app, you can take care of mailing on the go. Make the same no-brainer decisions as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up at Stamps.com with code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Uh, Dan? Yeah, no, Sarah makes a good point, but I, I think I'm still going to go with the Dazzler who doesn't. If I'm going to eat with them, I'm going to go with the one who hasn't poisoned anyone. <laughs> I can remember. She's yes. only poisoned them with her music. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. On a side note, I need somebody to please write a comic in the actual setting, like the storytelling coming from being a drunk conversation, because the idea of like, oh, also, I forgot to tell you, like, is so perfectly confusing and like magical that I need to read that story right now. We get a lot of like angel as hero, angel as angel, angel as CEO, or angel as archangel stories. We rarely get like chunky Worthington family drama angel stories, but I would love to write a modern story in which he has his uncle Bert back. Like that would be amazing. Uh, I did note this in one previous episode, but uh, the Bert Worthington character really, this is kind of his last appearance, except for like a couple pages. Uh, and uh, he is referenced in Chuck Austin's Maximus Lobo storyline. If you reference that in the future comics, I have talked to Chuck in the Patreon episode we did on Maximus Lobo. So if you'd like to hear more about Uncle Bert, you can go there. But this will be our last conversation about this delightful character on this show. Okay, I'm going to start this uh, review. X-Men The Hidden Years number 15 is from February 2001. Uh, John Byrne is writer, penciler, editor or excuse me, letterer, Tom Palmer is inker, Gregory Wright on color, and uh, Jason Liebig on edits. Uh, we get a gorgeous cover, cover of Angel cradling his mother's small body. Her shoes are still on. They're climbing into the sky, rising over bright yellow clouds as birds soar around him. This is a gorgeous John Byrne cover. Uh, the star of this cover is Angel's wings. There are ribbons of material from his mom's clothes kind of stringing downward. And we get the issue titled Death Be Not Proud. Uh, anyone have thoughts on this cover? It's one of my favorites from this series. It's stunning. I mean, the use of color, and I, I, I took um, copious notes while I was writing because I have the memory of kind of a small insect. Um, <laughs> and in this and in the final panel, um, you get this incredible color work, this like radiant orange sunset that really contrasts with the blue um, in both the mother's outfit and, you know, all of Angel's kind of outfit highlights are like blue to communicate black and I find the warmth of that background brings a sense of like love and care into this scene but there's also such a somber tone to the way the characters are kind of um acting in their faces and the limpness of the limbs communicates so much sorrow that it's like it's just a dynamic and beautiful cover. And also, I love when there's just a lot of birds that are shaped like the letter M in a background of something. It's like, oh, that's right. Let's add some of these guys in here, too. Any other thoughts on the cover? I just think it's really beautiful. And also, though, like one of those things where it perfectly sums up what's happening in the issue. You know, like that's one of my silly little pet peeves is if the cover has nothing to do with the issue, then I'm like, what? Sure, what sure. Is this, how is this related? It means a hell of 
Yeah. It's a hell of a spoiler for the issue as well. Right, exactly. Then you're like, oh, but hmm, sad. But it's, I agree, like that final it, panel, like how they connect, chef's kiss. It's not exactly a spoiler because we learned that Angel's mom died in like the first champions issue in like 1979 or something. And this is a 2001 story telling how she died. But yes, it is a spoiler for the issue itself. Uh, Dan, any thoughts on the cover? Um, other than accusing you of being a spoiler? I mean, I'm still kind of interested in that because also I think uh, the fact that it shows what happens at the end of the issue also debunks the idea that spoilers actually damage our enjoyment of things very much. Sure. Which is something that I, I've, I've sort of come to come to think by doing enough comics. Um, people would rather know how things went down than to, uh, you know, be uh, sort of tantalized by every cliffhanger. So we're going to jump into this issue. I will handle the first part of these books. Uh, we take a step back here as we open with the X-Men, Candy Southern, and Avia, who is the mute bird woman from the Savage Land and also Alicia Wilder's favorite character. And they are returning to the X-Mansion after their battle with Stefan Kruger, who is also riffraff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. And they are meeting Iceman, Lorna Dane, and Havoc. They are just back from the Savage Land, where they fought Magneto and Sauron. Phew! But all the characters are back together. Uh, they catch up on all the complicated plots, and then they get Avius some medical help. Uh, Candy says... <laughs> you can tell me something right now, lover. Do I need to be jealous of that little birdie? And Angel says, jealous? Uh, no, Candy. Avia saved my life and helped us escape from the Savage Land. But And Beast butts in. But despite his reputation as a ladies' man, Warren has always practiced serial monogamy. Uh, do we have thoughts on Avia or this little interchange with Candy's jealousy? I love this scene. <laughs> Um, I would just like to say that the the uh, um uh, no no darling I would I would never uh, look at this beautiful bird woman like that is very um I cheated on you vibes <laughs> it is very I already did it energy um I do also want to say I am just like idly a huge Iceman fan solely because of the notorious Iceman and Wolverine cover um we're we're all nodding we all <laughs> know the one I'm talking about. It's a cover that uh, lives in my heart. And so I see Iceman here and I immediately think, where's your boyfriend? <laughs> yes. Any you other know, thoughts? Oh, oh, go ahead, Alicia. Yeah, I just love me some candy. And I'm living for the fact that she's just like, she's wearing Marvel Girl's outfit and she's like, I'm here. I'm, I'm part, I made my way in. I'm part of you all. I'm not a mutant, but I'm here. Okay. We love her. And you love Avia, right? Yeah, of course. She's 12, 12 pounds, six feet tall with feather panties and giant eyes. Like, what's not to love? <laughs> How can you not love her? Yet another unattainable beauty standard. <laughs> uh, and then yeah, we... I think my favorite, my favorite thing here, um, which uh, is, is just the first appearance of it, but it's the thing that struck me with this these these two issues is uh, is Beast communicating that he's intelligent by always using the longest word he can possibly <laughs> use at any given time. Um, which feels very insecure. Sometimes I have to look up his words and I consider myself well-read. Uh, okay, then we are back to the Worthington estate where once again, Dr. Stewart is advising that Catherine not be told that Warren is a mutant because the War Worthington family is full of all kinds of secrets anyway. And 
whoosh, the exposition that this title requires. Uh, we see Lorna in Salem Center, Massachusetts. Oh my good lord. We see Lorna in Salem Center, uh, New York, in a blonde wig, out for a walk, thinking about how annoying Alex is, and we definitely agree. And suddenly she is telekinetically tripped and she falls into the arms of Tad Carter, who automatically knows who she is. Uh, he invades her mind and gives her the mental command to come get a cup of coffee with him. Okay, you guys, I'm going to cover this very quickly, but we have to take a giant step back for a moment. In Amazing Adult Fantasy Number 14, which is a book by Stanley and Steve Ditko in 1962, it's an anthology issue. It's the closing one in the title. There's several stories that are just kind of short four or five page, like, ooh, look at this thing that happened to this human. Isn't that scary? And there's a whole bunch of these types of stories that are often celebrated when they do Marvel anthologies. Uh, this book ran under Amazing Adventures from numbers one through six. It ran as Amazing Adult Fantasy from seven to 14. Uh, Amazing Adventures is then canceled, comes back as a volume two, which is where we get the Beast Turns Blue stories uh, storyline from. We'll be reviewing that series later this year on my show. Okay, the second story in this issue is called The Man in the Sky. Uh, in this, we see a full-page image of a man flying without wings against the sky. This is Tad Carter, the same guy that Lorna just met. And the Ditko work here is really beautiful. Tad, We learn that Tad's father, Brad, was exposed to radiation while working on a bomb. And then he passed that on to his son, who became a mutant. And it does use the word mutant here. And this is weirdly the same origin story of Professor X and Beast. Their dads like got exposed to nuclear radiation and then these babies were born in this weird way. Anyway, Tad realized growing up that he had telekinetic and telepathic powers. He sought to show uh, his powers to his peers, but they attacked him and called him a mutant. And then he learned he could fly. And then as he, as he flies, he hears a strange voice in his head that says, and I quote, Tad Carter, it is time for you to know the truth, Tad Carter. You are not alone. There are many of us, many mutants, as mankind calls us, mutants who have powers that human beings never dreamed of such as the power to fly, though we are far away. We are the next great stage in the development of man. We are the telepaths, the teleporters, the mind readers. We are the future. People fear those who are different. And humans try to destroy those whom they fear, just as they tried to destroy you. They are too savage, too primitive to understand. But we will bring you to us now, and you will wait with us. We shall wait together until the world is ready to welcome us. We shall wait in hiding until that fateful day when mankind comes of age. And then Tad flies away, and this is the end. And this is a really fascinating idea about uh, the isolationist philosophy. There's queer theory here, where instead of trying to integrate, which is Professor X's dream, or fight back, which is Magneto's dream, it's the idea of removing ourselves from society completely and starting something new. This is a forgotten story. John Byrne is bringing this group into the next several issues of The Hidden Years. It's called The Promise, and Tad Carter is one of those characters. Uh, so I'm setting that up once, and I'll briefly review it when we do our next episode. But do you guys have any thoughts on this quick five-page story that's referenced in this issue? It's kind of fascinating. Well, I guess, like, knowing that he's mind-controlling her in some way is really helpful because for, like, Lorna to be 
confused about how this person knows her at all when no one should know her and when she knows she's wearing a disguise and then to just shuffle along like we don't find out until later that she doesn't really recall what's happening so I was very much like red flag Lorna red flag red flag don't do it girl and she just keeps doing it um which was a little shocking to me but you know she's learning the the superhero thing so I guess we can give her some grace there poor Lorna (laughs) (laughs) I read these pages a few times because I I clocked the um the, in the letters, you've got the word now in like a very heavy, heavily lined bubble each time you know, mind controls her. And I missed the first one completely. And then I saw the second one. I saw the word now in this heavy bubble. And I was like, what? Um, and had to go back and reread it a few times. But I loved this. Um, in my very, very early 20s, this was exactly my type of guy, the type of guy who kind of wants to mind control you and suck you away from your life and make you ignore every red flag he sends up. And so Lorna suddenly being like, yeah, okay, I'll go with this. I was like, yeah, girl suffer. Yeah. Oh no, Lorna. Uh, Dan, do you have any thoughts? Um, I don't know that I've got much to add to that. To be honest. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's okay. I don't think I, I don't think I connected this to, cause you sent through the, 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 uh, Ditko short. And I've only just figured out this was the same thought. This is the same guy. <laughs> yeah, I knew I was going to talk about it on the show. So I thought I'd send that out just to make sure you guys saw it. This is a very little known story that uses the word mutant and Byrne brought it in here. You'll never hear about this group ever again. But the idea of them waiting for uh, society or or the world to catch up, you almost wonder if this group's waiting for Krakoa, which is such an interesting thing uh, as well. Okay, finishing up my section. Dr. Stewart reminds Angel that Catherine is so fragile, and also she's gone back to church and she's reading the Bible now, and it's all because of your Uncle Bert. And Bert is like, Angel, will you bless our, or Warren, will you bless our union? And he's looking so gross, and Warren is so mad. Uh, We get to a spare room in the house where Scott and Jean are lounging on a really fugly bed, while Hank is like, kicked his shoes off and is like, full-on picking his feet in front of his friends. It's so gross. And Iceman is like, why can't we just go cream that creep? And Gene's like, I can't read his mind. And so he must have done something to block my thoughts. Uh, And in the other room, Bert is giving Catherine her delicious poison tea. This is very like, drink your juice, Shelby. But Stuart realizes that Bert has been doubling the poison dose. And he's like, you fool, Catherine might die before the wedding now. And then you won't get the diamond fortune. God, this is great. Uh, page 11, this is my last one. Lorna comes home and Alex uh, just lights into her. Where in the blazes have you been? And she's like, uh, I was shopping. Leave me alone. And he's like, you've been gone for nine hours. And she's like, I don't know what happened, but you don't own me. Uh, and he's like, okay, okay, take it down a notch, babe. Oh, fuck you, Alex Summers. Uh, let's go from there. <laughs> I'll turn it over to Sarah for the uh, second half of this issue. Can I just say, I didn't know, I wasn't 100% sure if I needed to be presenting page 11, so I, I took notes on page 11, too, and I wrote down, take it down a notch, babe. I was, I immediately had, I was, it activated my, like, kill impulse <laughs> immediately upon reading, like, someone destroyed this man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we smash cut to Alex and Lorna inside this big supercomputer room. Um Alex tells Lorna that he's isolated the signal of a thing that they need to find. Um, and he he kind of just gets like a big um, vaudeville 
shepherd's hook and drags her into an adventure. He's he's like, yeah, they're somewhere deep in the Himalayas. Um, I isolated a signal and I found this thing within a dozen signals of an odd signature. So uh, come on, let's go find it. And she's like, I don't know if we should do that, bud. And he says, no, yeah, we should. And just takes her by the hand and says, we're going to get into our costumes. We're going to bail. The, this supercomputer room is exactly how I picture the inside of a computer. Very vague, very shiny, lots of little gizmos and wires. Um, and there's a giganto ship. Um, they describe it as the ship the X-Men captured from the Sentinels. They say they're running an auto repair program, which I love. Earlier in the issue, we get um, Avia being loaded into something called the auto dock, which will fix her, which I need. So if I can please borrow this from the X-Men um, or an auto repair program, either would work. Um, and they go off on our adventure. I think that's the last we hear from them in this issue um, because we spend a lot more time after this on Warren family drama. So after that kind of single page with them, oh, should I pause there and ask? No, if you you're, you're good. Go ahead. Okay. Um, after that page, we come back to the enormous Warren mansion. Um, Warren's mom is kind of tottering around. Uh, she's she has become very childlike in her poisoned state. Um, she is wearing this like. I'm I'm not 100% sure if this is her wedding outfit or just like what she wears, but it's kind of a light blue dressing gown, floor length with a very soft um, knee length white dress under it that could easily be a nightgown. But she also has her kid gloves and her flower crown, which reads wedding to me. This is so 1940s melodrama to me. There's like the scene, like Betty Davis is playing a frail, dying woman in the next room. And she gets up in her bathrobe and like puts on a dress and a flower. And like, I'm ready for the wedding, darling. She like walks out and it's just so well done. It's great. Yes. This is very that. She's carrying her Bible, which um, we get a lot of reinforcement that she's back into with not really a lot of follow-up as to like why this narratively matters, but I'm sure to readers there was some shorthand there. Um, and also her son is reflecting on the fact that all of her staff has been changed, which means she's isolated in her home. The red flags are just stacking up a mile high. Um, but just as uh, just as her son starts to be like, hey, I think this might be a bad scene, she faints, she doesn't feel well, and she yeah, he, collapses. <laughs> He says, Mom, I'm worried about you. She goes, oh, now that's just silly, dear. The only <laughs> thing Bertram worries about is my, is my, oh my, I feel so weak all of a sudden. Oh, and she faints onto a fainting couch. I feel so foolish collapsing like that. <laughs> I would love to know what the end of that sentence was going to be. Because <laughs> I, I think and hope that the last, you know, couple of weeks of her life getting to know Bertram were the most erotic of her entire existence. Um, I just think that would be a nice a nice capstone for her. So Dr. Stewart is tending to frail, fainted mother. Um, and uh, Hank spots that uh, Warren's mom's lips are turning blue. He identifies this as a sign of low oxygen in her bloodstream. But it's too late. Uh, Bert bursts in and declares that the time for charades is over. Catherine and I are getting married this afternoon as planned. Your being alive to attend is not required, which again, it's so soapy. And his oh, his I voice his voice to me is like, "Your being required to attend is not required." <laughs> it's, like... <laughs> it's he is so 
catty and campy and he immediately like activates his powers he emits a light that will destroy nervous systems um he talks about how his like all his plans have come to fruition and then he says uh there will be nothing the six of you can do but then he looks around and he counts on his little thingies and he realizes there's only five people in the room which is when peak of the issue for me cyclops bursts out from behind a couch (laughs) and says i wondered when you'd realize i wasn't here so i guess couches block dazzler powers um which is kind of a uh something that the dazzler you would think would be aware of but we all learn about ourselves in our own time that's the real (laughs) takeaway from this issue cyclops is a master tactician and that (laughs) i think really comes through in this issue yeah, Scott Summers, the Napoleon of the team, honestly. Um, mm-hmm. So he cyclopses the shit out of Dazzler. Uh, right in the gut. Which, does this not kill a man? Like, I've, I feel like if Cyclops shot me in the gut with his eye beams, I would be a hundo P dead. But maybe not. Um, you don't know, but the, but, the, but the verb Cyclops is the shit, I think, should be the canon... Uh, term for every time he uses his powers. Yes. Yeah, it's a scientific term uh, from the mm. you know, the upper echelons of academia uh, to Cyclops the shit out of. Um, so a- Angel rips his shirt off, which and and Bobby is so hard. <laughs> yeah, Bobby is like, go on. <laughs> um, and Angel is you know furious. He uh, he's ready to fight. He acknowledges once more as a kind of Hamlet Lion King situation. Like you're my uncle and you killed my dad and you're going to marry my mom. And uh, we've seen through quite a lot of media that that is not uh, a Baja blast for anybody. So Angel decides to fix the, the situation. He fucking wails on Bert. He beats the piss out of him. He is just absolutely physically demolishing this man. Lots of nipple prominent in the panels. Exquisite. Um, and Angel has a great line here. He says, I used to call myself the Avenging Angel, which I think is very metal. I like it. Yeah, I think it an excellent, an excellent line all around. Um Scott and Hank absolutely ruin his entire deal here. He's got all this energy worked up. And he's really ready to make wine out of his uncle. But Scott and Hank yank him off and say, don't have any fun. No murder. Jean Grey uh, goes into Dazzler's mind and locks his powers. He won't be dazzling anyone for a while. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to point out, the entire narrative climax to the show Avatar The Last Airbender was the immense challenge and turmoil of instead of retaliating with violence uh retaliating by simply removing someone's ability to cause harm and they just they just peppered it in to this issue uh to solve a wedding problem um so good job gene that seems like a pretty intense and invasive solution but you know he he was hamleting all over the place so we just a cheeky little psychic lobotomy (laughs) <laughs> just a just a little uh boop brain out of your head she learned from the best yeah right yep. exactly. Xavier's yeah. always wiping people's minds or you know performing <laughs> psychic surgery we'll get there 
Yeah, it's fine. It's ethically, it's completely fine to do. It's not like there's a board that can disbar them. Um, so oh, I just completely lost my place. Oh, you're um, good. They, they've defeated the angel and Dr. Yes. Stewart realizes that Catherine is dying and Gene yeah. his mind and realizes he's, he's in on it. Oh, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> the, the incredible, again, just the drama that I feel is underlying all the interactions here. Dr. Stewart is thinking to himself, Bert must have doubled the dose. And Gene walks in and says, what dose? You don't have any mental disciplines to shield your thoughts. And she's like, I'm nailing this. And then in Scott, Thumps in and says, and since your partner betrayed you, we don't need Jean's telepathy to read your mind, which I think is mad churlish. Like, she's doing an incredible job. And he just comes in and he's like, we didn't need that. <laughs> no one needs you, Jean. Only I could ever love you. Um, I, I just think Scott could, like, sit down behind the couch. You already did your part. But no. Uh, Dr. Stewart bursts out with the bigotry and says, yeah, he did all of this stuff because he thinks Angel is a monster. He's like, Angel, you're a freak. You're a horrible creature. When you were born, I saw your big shoulder blades and said that thing has got to go. Um, funniest line on this page and in this issue is he says, I guess what you might be, which I just don't think he did. I think that he is <laughs> fibbing. I think he is saying, I knew all along. I don't think that you see a baby with big shoulder blades and say to yourself, I think that's an angel. I think that has angel wings and I'm going to, in the future, help poison his mother. But he does reveal that um, villainous Uncle Bert, who is now missing some teeth and probably deeply concussed, doubled the dose of the poison. Mom's going to be dead within the hour. Um, Hank confirms this somehow by looking, says, oh yeah, she's going to be dead within the hour um, and we have no choice but to let her die. So I guess the Instadoc is charging? It only is works it, on mutants, perhaps. Is it out of batteries? Like, do we need to put some <laughs> gas in the tank? No, mom's just got to freaking go. Um, <laughs> Warren says, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, and he takes his mom up into the clouds to fly her around until she's dead, which... And there's there's such a strong, like, and tell Cosette I love her and I'll see her <laughs> when I wake. And then he, like, flies her off into the clouds as the orchestra plays. Yes. Um, Hank, by the way, has said that the poison that she was being given interferes with oxygen to the brain. So taking her up to altitude is a guaranteed way to speed uh, her demise. So that's the end of our issue. We get this beautiful final panel um, mirroring the um, gorgeous cover. Again, really beautiful clouds. We're very biblical. She is very limp in the arms of her son, who's looking very tragic. His hair looks phenomenal. A lot of volume, a lot of wave, a lot of curl, uh, giving a lot of body to the grief. And uh, that closes us out. Uh, Catherine Worthington basically shows up like five times. I'm oversimplifying, but she's drunk while Angel's off at boarding school or while he's growing up. We get that weird story in the 60s comics where Magneto puts Angel's parents into a nap and then tries to use their DNA to create a mutant android army. Uh, and then she dies here, and that's kind of all we ever see of her, really. Uh, as we jump into the next issue, number 16, we have a cover where a big Yeti man is attacking uh, the X-Men along with the corpse of Cyclops in a purple robe and i do not understand oh no no that's the that's the scroll corpse from the issue 
pardon me. We get an image of a giant Yeti man uh, attacking the X-Men and sitting next to them is a very emaciated female corpse uh, looking like what, what is in uh, Cyclops's visor. We'll get the revelation of this in the series. It's not that exciting. Uh, this, this does pull in the characters from Marvel, the lost generation. As I mentioned, this particular character Yeti first shows up in fantastic four, number 99, which is supposed to take place shortly after this issue. Uh, and then that character gets pulled into the front line series or the first line series by John Byrne later. Uh, Dan, do you want to open this book for us and tell us what happens? Sure. Uh, I love like how much is going on in that cover and it's less than half of what's uh, going on in this issue. <laughs> um, oh, I so forgot. The, the, nice the, the title of this issue is Echoes of a Lost Generation. Uh, go ahead. Yeah. So, yes, we got a nice big splash page to open, which seems to have been the uh, the structure that Burma's going for. Um, uh, big splash of Cyclops being furious, which is always the best Cyclops. Um, the repression of that man is just wonderful. Um, uh, screaming the idiots, what could they have been thinking? Because uh, he has just learned that uh, Havoc and Lorna, I should have written down the names. Yeah, Lorna. Um, Lorna have just uh, have um, sorted off to the Savage Land to check out that signal. Can I um, can I read? Uh, then... Alex Alex leaves a voicemail for Scott. Hi Scott, you guys haven't <laughs> you guys haven't come back from Angel's place out on Long Island, and Lorna and I are getting tired of sitting on our duffs waiting for you. We're going to go check on that unidentified mutant signature Cerebro picked up in the Himalayas. I've left the coordinates in case you feel like following, but I'm betting betting we'll be back before you are. Havoc out. There's so much sass. <laughs> so much sass. Yeah, I do love the, this. The, you know, you've gone from a big splash page uh to a to a five panel page where or a four panel page where they decide to put 12 balloons into one panel um just so they can recap what what message havoc has left for them which is a choice and um, I, and iceman's like god havoc is such a dummy because he's still jealous of havoc for stealing lorna yeah ha havoc also like very on the message very much giving the energy of someone who's about to be yeah, a superhero who's about to be horrifically mutilated and not come back from the mission. <laughs> um, so the the they they're all already suited up because they they knew what was coming next. So they uh, they they get on the ship and uh, head off. We then get another another narrative choice where we open with a crash landing for three panels, um, with the great line from Lorna, uh, Lorna, Lorna with the crash ship. Uh, where am I? Oh, right. Lost in the Himalayas, uh, which is a very casual uh, phrasing. Yeah, you know, sometimes, yeah, sometimes, you you know, your mind, your mind drifts. Uh, so we get three panels of that. And then we get the flashback to the uh, the crash uh, with a very nice uh, hand-drawn Krakow SFX as the ship is hit by a, a giant rock. You know, it's like when a Yeti um, throws a rock at your ship. It happens sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, oh, there's, it's also a quang. Lovers. It's a krakow or a quang. Um, right. So they couldn't choose, and they went with both. Um, so Lorna um, narrates to herself a bit as she as she wanders towards uh, one of those temples uh, which litter the Himalayas. Um, which she is very casual about finding as well. It's like, oh, maybe I can get warm in that temple. Um, 
she goes inside. She screams. We're going to learn in a while that very... she sees a creepy corpse in there. So she's in the middle of like the mountains, wrapping her cape around herself to avoid freezing to death, enters the little shack and finds a corpse. Ah, like poor Lorna. She's having a bad time, you guys. I got to tell you, if you're going to find mean, a corpse anywhere, I feel like seemingly abandoned temple in the Himalayas is like, I would be kind of upset not to find one. I would walk into the <laughs> abandoned temple in the Himalayas and be like, really? No corpses? Uh-oh, I guess I'm going to be the first one. It's a it's a bit much after a jet crash, though, isn't it? Like you know, you know, it just maybe maybe one thing a day would be all right. She didn't even um, want to blow. Yeah, she didn't want to go. Why why she would ever stay with the X Men after this uh, whole experience <laughs> is uh, is quite a question. Uh, we then go back to the the Worthington estate with um, Warren now being like really quite calm about the uh, uh, Doc Stewart whole dog steward situation dazzler's being taken taken away by the cops um his mother's corpse is being carted away and he's just kind of snappy at the man who helped murder his mom well he even says um, to the, he even says to the cop this is warren's like rich boy right? you have a job to do and my father's taxes go a long way yeah. for paying you to do it it's very very white privilege here I feel the like it's giving like very very succession vibes from from Warren. <laughs> this issue. I think it's because I've been like binging it for the hundredth time while I work on cosplay. But like I'm just imagining that this is like the Gilmore Girls mansion, and these are like these are the the you know the people of Connecticut and their fancy dinner parties are being interrupted by death. Oh, delicious. Hmm. Um, I also do like Dazzler sort of just just for the sake of exposition, fully admitting to everything he did, which seems like a a, a legal mistake, but uh, he goes ahead. I don't know. Um, he, got, he got very nearly turned into pudding in the previous one. He's probably like, can you put me somewhere where Angel can't get to me? Uh, I mean, he yeah, except he's very, except he's, he's, he's still kind of digging the knife in though. You know, he's sort of, he's, he's, he's being quite snarky about it right in front of Angel with his hands high, handcuffed behind his back. So there's a, maybe a, a Darwinism failure there as well. Um, also, I, 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 I also thought that was weird in, in the, in the last issue because the two of them murdered his mother, but Angel only beats up uh, Dazzler. He then grabs uh dog stewart by the shirt but doesn't go any further with it but i do understand sometimes you know when you've got 20 20 or 22 pages it's hard to fit two beatings into the climax of your story and well and dazzler is the man that murdered his father right like he, he has he has some feelings about this guy yeah yeah sure sure but you know i, I would i would say one paternal homicide would probably be enough to annoy me but uh <laughs> I mean, what does Doc Stewart's shirt do to deserve such rough treatment? <laughs> he has a bow tie. <laughs> it's uh, just a fashion crime. Um, wait, I've, I've totally lost my place. Uh, well, <laughs> they, they confront Doc Stewart a little bit on being involved and why he did it. And we realize he's a huge anti-mutant. We can maybe see this guy back in Orcus these days alongside other terribly homophobic people or mutant phobic people. Uh, we also then see uh, a, a revelation that Gene is blocking Dazzler and Doc Stewart from being able to say that the X-Men are mutants or that these characters are mutants, which is an effective way to use your powers because you're stopping someone from revealing information without deleting their fucking mind or like doing right. 
psychic brain surgery. So good job on that, Gene. Uh, and then we get back to the X-Mansion where there's a man sneaking in. Do you want to take it there, Dan? Sure, yeah. A man sneaking in who we definitely can't recognize because he's wearing that age-old disguise of a trench coat over his spandex. <laughs> Um, which is always my favorite. That's my favorite trope ever. Like when you see either the thing or the Hulk. Or, uh, remember Abomination wandering around New York wearing a trench coat and, <laughs> and everyone was just fine with it. I think he had a hat as well because uh, he has, you know, fins for ears. But uh, this is uh, a man in leopard print and ballet shoes who, as Marvel readers, we definitely can't recognize because he's colored purple. Um, so he is sneaking into the X Mansion is very chill about seeing a big robot. Um, he then uh, encounters Avia, knocks her out with a karate chop, uh, immediately knows somehow she's not an X-Man. Uh, maybe he just has, has uh, you know, a list of the team. Uh, and he takes her so hostage. Avia, again, is a mute bird woman who like has no agency she's blown away in a storm she's captured she's nailed to a wall uh she gets really badly wounded she's now put in this like stasis unit she wakes up and craven the hunter karate chops her in the neck and then like this woman has no agency it's a horrible character for those of you in the room that are attracted to women could avia get it Distinctly no. Um, I, 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 first of all, because she doesn't seem to produce uh, thoughts, and so I don't know that she can meaningfully consent. Um, but also, just, I mean, she, she, as you said, she's six feet tall and she weighs like twelve pounds. I would be so afraid of breaking any part of her teeny tiny hollow bird bones that I would, I would simply prefer to remain platonic. Uh she she does feel a little bit like a beak prototype. Yep. We've talked about uh we've talked like, about her on the show a few times now. My fondest wish for her is that she's hanging out with Bird Boy from the New Mutants somewhere and they have found an uh, incredible love together. That is my hope for this character. <laughs> uh Dan, do you want to take yeah, a I, I hope, I hope, she, I hope she just gets as far far away from the X-Men as she as she can because it, mm -hmm. it's not working out for her or Lorna. And, and also I hope um, we'll never see her again because I just don't want to look at her. <laughs> You know what she reminds uh, me of is um there's this Junji Ito comic that's about models and the models uh, are evil. Um there's this like this is like beautiful model that all the photographers are obsessed with. And the way that she's drawn reminds me so much of the way that Junji Ito is like, what if a beautiful woman was scary? Um just very similar like facial structure and kind of hypnotically massive eyes. Um and if she has the same abilities as the scary model from that Junji Ito comic, I will change my answer on whether or not she can get it. Give her some agency and then we'll talk. <laughs> uh, Dan, do you want to wrap up your section? Sure. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're back with the, uh, the, the core team, I guess, uh, uh, flying uh, to the Himalayas. Uh, they then start getting hit with rocks. They make the same, you know, Havoc was an idiot for flying off uh, without them, but then they immediately fall into the exact same booby trap that Havoc did, so it makes absolutely no difference. Yeah. Uh, okay, Alicia, do you want to handle the uh, last half of uh, issue number 16? Oh, I would love to. Um, all right, so 
the X-Men have, as we've just said, found the Sentinel ship and they're picking up what seems like a thousand mutants and their Cerebro is going haywire. So they're distracted and they're also hit by flying rocks. And one of my all-time favorite moments of the issue is when Scott asks Jean if she's all right and she says, I'm inverted, but otherwise undamaged. <laughs> uh, you know, back a long time ago, uh, they called us inverts and I just think that that's canon now. Oh, Jean's like, hey, Scott, this is a weird time to tell you, but I am only attracted to women. Sorry. <laughs> Who the uh, heck is tossing those rocks at us? Iceman says. <laughs> he says, someone with a catapult of truly Brobdingdanian proportions, Iceman. Or him. And <laughs> we see Yeti, but we don't yet know who he is. But you don't get to, to hear the rest of that story quite yet because... We must take a venture to see what exactly our good friend Charles Xavier is up to. Alicia, quick question. Would yes. you would you cosplay as Yeti? I mean, I could do it. I could get a white wig and I could go crazy like that with that outfit. What about, yeah, tell, tell us what this outfit is. <laughs> okay, so mm, it's a questionable if we could call it an outfit because it appears to be like a metal tube of some sort uh, that's also giving like, inspired by polaris bodysuit vibes um and it's kind know. of like it's kind of like a butt plug with like sides cut out that yeah, just wears. it's, it's, it's so really it's real weird guys oh i love this i mean it's i mean it's clearly got corset structure in it he is cinched and snatched yes he's also giving tresemme like these flowing yeti locks he's dude hate me because i'm beautiful Rawr. <laughs> exactly like even his arm fur is flowing in the wind oh yeah he knows he's like beyonce he always knows how to face into the fan yes. like i think that it's i think it's giving and i think you could work it really beautifully long toes also. yes oh my god don't you cut your say about a yeti with long toes Good at throwing rocks. <laughs> uh, take us back to the Martin house, which has been like there's like curtains on it because the Sentinel attack damaged the house, and they're just hanging out inside. Whatever. Oh my goodness! Yeah, we've got Ms. Martin and Ashley, and Charles's chair has been damaged, and we're having a conversation about. Oh, I'm so sorry that my house isn't fully equipped for you and your needs. And Charles is, you know, oh, it's 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 fine. You know, at least I'm on the bottom floor. And what we're learning here is that uh, Ashley is a mutant whose powers have developed before her puberty, or as Justin and I like to call it, her muberty. And um, she hasn't hit muberty yet, so she can't possibly have powers. So what we need to do is give her psychic brain surgery so that I've killed Sarah. Um, I'm sorry, muberty <laughs> took a minute to hit me, but it just has completely taken me out. So good. I can't take ownership of that. That was my husband. Um, but so we need to make sure that we can uh, disconnect her from her powers until she's ready. And what we're seeing is that she has the ability to completely puppet the Sentinel. So um, the conversation between Charles and Ashley's mother is that she's unsure if she wants her daughter to be a mutant. And Charles is basically saying, listen, I turned her powers off but I can't get rid of them or I'm not going to get rid of them. So they will happen eventually. 
And she says, uh, she says uh, does that mean she's not a mutant anymore? I mean, after what I've seen, I can't say I like the idea of my daughter being like you and your X-Men. Oh, man, who just performed psychic brain surgery on my daughter is now fucking staying in my house against my will. Xavier, Can we, we know how I feel. We know how I feel. Can I just say she is bam and slim and beauty, bootylicious. Like mm-hmm. Mrs. Martin they didn't have to go that hard on making her like milf prime. Ashley's mom has got it going on. (laughs) She's rocking that crop top right now. And then in comes Ashley and she's got a little bit of a headache and it worries her mother. But Charles is like, no, no, that, that can't be from my surgery. Uh, she just has a headache. And he decides to tell her this in her mind where she says, er, thanks, but if you don't mind, I'd rather you didn't use your telepathy to talk to me. I've got enough to absorb as it is. I think so- he is I think he is removing her will here. He's he's staying in their house. When the girl says, I have a headache, he's like, you do not have a headache. You do not need to be worried. It's not like he's he's keeping this mother sedate. And you get the vibe, especially in the next couple issues, because these these people are around for a minute. You get the vibe that they're fucking. It's a weird story. I hate. I want to go back and do the trial of Charles Xavier again, and just do this as one of the trial points. It's so gross. I can can't stand that dummy. All right. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we're going back to the fight, okay? And so the team is fighting the Yeti, who they seem to know, or at least they know of him, because he's one of the first line who is a team of heroes that were said to be the first line of defense for America against the Skrulls. They consist of an assortment of superpowered beings, and uh, we get a little tasting of some of them here. And Lorna and Alex wake up in the cave, and they they see the fight, and they're going to get into the fight. And Alex is like, Lorna, oh, you're too loud, okay? I brought us on this journey, and I hit my head, and I don't want to hear it, okay? But the fight continues. And the Yeti is temporarily turned to stone by Pixie. We have Pixie. We have Inhumans. We have members of the first line. Pixie is not an Inhuman nor a mutant. Pixie is an Eternal, but we're not going to find that out here. That's my sidebar research that I did that gave me that information. Good job. Thank you. Okay. So we're going to hear why it is exactly that Yeti is here and why they have left the group in the first place. And they know some of what's happening, but also just tidbits of the story. So we get a a little Yeti recap. We hear that the Yeti's wild nature drove him away, which made him dangerous to everyone, including his teammates. There's some sort of tragedy with someone named Rapunzel, but we don't really know much about that. And then on his way back to the team, he gets lost in the mountains, trying to find his way and becomes trapped and falls in love with the scroll. And the scroll dies and the Yeti is here. Now I'm assuming the Yeti wants to continue to protect the body of his dead scroll lover. And that is why rocks must be thrown. Um, we have this very uh, real talk moment between the two teams where we kind of get the the recap of what happened with the scrolls and the potential devastation of the world. And we have this moment of saying, well, of course we didn't tell everybody what happened because then they would know that their saviors have died and there's a possibility of them coming back or the villains coming back, scrolls being the villains to kill everybody. So we decided to keep the humans in the dark and Cyclops is like, yeah, all right, that's a good idea. And, you know, 
superheroes. That's how we do it. We don't tell you everything because if we told you everything, you would be panicking all the time. And the Inhumans um, that are here, and they're really of no consequence, but you see Black Bolt, Medusa, Gorgon, and Karnak in like three panels for five seconds, and that's it. <laughs> they exist. Um, and we get this beautifully poetic moment where one of the Inhumans says, sometimes the fates can be most unkind to those who deserve it least. And Bobby says, well, if you ask me, that really bites. <laughs> and I agree, Bobby. It does bite. Bobby <laughs> just has such a way with words. I know, really. He's he's he is just an artist. That's what I'll say. Bobby's an artist. You guys, Angel just ripped his shirt off in front of him. Give him a break. He's he's, he's occupied. Yeah, he that's hasn't, true. He hasn't yet let the world know his true self, so he's got to like let it out somewhere. <sighs> so Lorna is just smitten with the idea of this love story, and. The Inhumans have repaired the X-Men's ships and sent them home. And, you know, we're home. And oh, we got to we gotta do just a second on Lorna really quickly. She oh, goes, yeah. it was all kind of romantic in a way. That big monster in love with a skull, scroll, risking his life to protect her even long after she was dead. And Bobby, who's her now her ex, says, seems like there's a fine line between being romantic and being a dope. And she goes, and you wonder why you were never able to win my heart, Bobby. When you talk like that, you make me just want to. And then, enough! Good. So take that part. Go ahead. <laughs> enough! And it's revealed who was wearing the trench coat, but one of my favorites, Craven the Hunter. And he's here, and he has Avia as his hostage slash bargaining chip to say, listen, I'll give her back if one of you will fight me in which will be, you know, the ultimate battle because every battle with Craven is the ultimate battle. But we're not going to get to see the battle on this issue, folks. Sorry, you have to tune in next time. That was I, a, that was a fun couple of issues. Like yeah. this series can be taxing and there was a lot of dense continuity, but these two issues are fun. They they give you what I think really fun campy comics have the ability to give you, which is like, hey, here's a freaky little guy, and he is just at top volume 100% of his day. He is never curtained to be less than maximum. And that's what this gives you. I mean, I think issue 15 has that with every single character, um, including Scott hiding behind the couch. And <laughs> in this issue, Craven is just, he's also one of my favorites, and he is at full the eyeballs of the lion on my vest are right over my nipples, like static. I just, I just love him. Where are the lasers? Where are the nipple lasers? Yeah. Closing yeah. thought as we are wrapping up. Uh, this is another example, and I've done this a couple of times with Hidden Years, where all of the female characters are not really actors of will in any way. Jean gets to block some thoughts. Candy's insecure about Warren. Avia's literally karate chopped in the neck and then held as a hostage. Uh, Warren's mother dies and is carried away. Uh, and we have Lorna, who got mentally coerced by a stranger and then manipulated by Havoc into going somewhere. So it's another example of there's a lot of female characters, but they don't really get anything to do, which is frankly a very 1960s vibe. So if you were trying to accomplish that, well done, John Byrne. <laughs> Any thoughts before we wrap up? Yeah, I thought this was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed these issues and I liked 
the sort of scattered nature of it, because even if you're only reading two, you're getting a good idea of like all the things that are happening currently in continuity. And I love a good story that kind of like plugs into something else. Like it feels very harmonious with the interworkings of the group from the 60s comics. Yeah, I found this to be a, a tremendous sense of value in terms of density of characters. Um, if you really need a, like a speed run of just meet the whole gang, you get it. I also just, it's so, it's so fun. It's so high drama. It's so high camp. Um, it's not too self-serious. You've got a lot of really small human moments, like Hank on the bed, just kind of fucking around with his feet where it's like, yeah, these are just some guys hanging out. They're having more low key adventures, but also the stakes become suddenly extraordinarily high with no warning. And also, <laughs> Beast picking his foot is so gross. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, we're going to wrap up here, everyone. This was a genuine delight. Uh, Dan and Sarah, it's so fun getting to know you today. Uh, and Alicia, it's so fun to hang out every time. Please come back soon, my friend. In fact, you are. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Uh, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap up here. Uh, tell people where, uh, where everyone can find you online if you'd like to be found. And is there anything you would like to plug, recognizing we're putting this episode out August 14th? Uh, Sarah, would you like to go first? Yeah, um, you can find me online. I'm on most social media platforms, although I'm really mostly on Instagram uh, and Tumblr these days. And you can find me under my name, Sarah Gailey. Um, you can also find everything I've ever written uh, on my website, www.sarahgailey.com. I've got links and information because I write way too much. <laughs> and it's, it's S-A-R-A-H-G-A-I-L-E-Y. Yes. Um, and in terms of what to plug, uh, as this is releasing, we will be coming up to the the uh, release date for the trade collection of Know Your Station, which is the creator-owned original comic series I co-created with genius Liana Kangas. Um, it is about a space station populated by billionaires and their staff uh, and the AI that runs the space station and the series of grisly murders that occur aboard the space station it is all billionaire murder wish fulfillment fantasy um and so much fun and i hope you check it out everywhere books and comics are sold sarah you are delightful may i have permission to add you to my list of new favorite people i would be so thrilled to be on that list uh dan do you have any final thoughts uh, on what it was like to revisit these two issues of the hidden years i mean like I said, it's peak comics. The the amount of stuff that happens in issue 16 alone, like, absolutely makes my head spin. Um, it's a joy. It's been delightful getting to know you. I'm so excited for the rest of Loki and for any other announcements that we might Thanks see. Thanks so much. Uh, as we're wrapping up, Dan, uh, where can people find you online? And we're going to put this out on August 14th. Is there anything you'd like to pitch? Or not pitch. Is there anything you'd like to plug? <laughs> Uh, no, pitch us. We're we're Marvel publishers now. Yeah, um, yeah. Pitch. I've got a I've got a twelve issue horny cyclops book uh, that I'd like to pitch. Uh, now that I've got you all, all, all here, I am ready um, for it. <laughs> no, um, I uh, can be found on all the usual places. Um, definitely not the new Zuckerberg place, but everywhere else um, at at Dan PG Waters um, and 
So August, uh, Seasons Have Teeth, issue four should be out now, which is my first creator-owned book for Boom. Um, so that's the the final issue of that, um, which I'm really excited for. Uh, the sort of Azrael um, trade has recently come out, and Loki 3 will be coming up around right now. <laughs> and Alicia. Yeah, so I'm Alicia. As you know, thanks for having me. I love being here. It brings me so much joy to spend time with you. Um, you can find me doing my cosplay thing at Wilder Moves on Instagram and TikTok. TikTok? TikTok? You know, that app, the clock app. And, and you then can eat, you can eat Tic Tacs while watching TikTok. Yeah, watch TikTok and eat Tic Tacs. Uh, but you can also find me at the Ex Wife podcast um, talking about current comics and sometimes older comics um, that are all X-Men related or X-Men adjacent um, with my husband, Justin. You can find us on the internet at the X-Wife podcast. That's T-H-E-X-W-I-F-E as in X-Men, not former wife. And as far as what's coming up for us, um, we'll be around doing things, popping to cons, talking about things all things x-men probably debriefing at this point and like having to do group therapy sessions about whatever's about to happen for the fall of x because i don't think i'm ready um at this point i might be crying so maybe i'll see you if you want to come cry with me about whatever happened we can get high and cry together it would be yes please <laughs> uh and lastly i'm chad anderson i keep my own social media private because i've got kiddos but you can find Grandmalk and lane Grandmalk and pp like podcast on twitter Grandmalk and underscore lane on instagram i've had the big honor of being a guest on some really fun podcasts this summer uh, check out my episodes with x reads with cerebro and with the x factor files podcast if you'd like to hear those there and support them all because they are wonderful along with the xy podcast of course uh the next episode coming out immediately after this is going to be about X-Men The Hidden Years numbers 17 and 18 with the incredible writer Daniel Kibblesmith coming on the show. I'm so excited to meet Daniel. Uh, right after that, we're having the trial of Herbert Edgar Wyndham, the high evolutionary, which uh, Alicia will be back for. And I'm very excited to record that show soon. On the Patreon immediately following this, we will have an episode out about Fontanelle with the fun combination of Justin Kosmachuk and Demanda Martini. Uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you, Dan. We will see you back here next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah, with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell, and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, it's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Grand Malkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Grand Malkin Lane. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.